Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. And so we find ourselves here again with the results of our lives. It's good to see you, Andrew, and good to see you, Mr. Sparrow. Yes, good to be seen by you. So I guess the segue was from Earth, and we decided to move into some veins of the Blakean ore and follow out three poems. And the reason that Blake came up is just because of this line from the introduction to his songs of experience, uh, O Earth, O Earth, Return. I wanted to point something out, and that is going back to one of our earlier podcasts on the nature of the chariot. Mm. I wanted to point out that in the weight tarot card deck, there's a uh, square in the chest, um, sort of just above the solar plexus, there's a square which represents the element Earth. Hmm. And if you look at that tarot card, that square looks hauntingly like a book. And hmm. I just I just wanted to say that the I think the nature of the book is is earthy. Hmm. You know the book. Traditionally, at any rate, as we've understood it in the last uh, 700 years or so, is made out of paper, which is made out of trees. And so it's kind of taking trees and bringing them back to the earth, you know, because the book very quickly becomes earth if you Mm. leave it outside, as we may have discovered in our lives, as we ourselves do. Yeah. (laughs) You know, um, Juliana Spar, her most recent book, I believe it's called That Winter the, the Wolf Came, is printed on paper that will um, decompose if it gets wet, if it's left outside. Huh. It will rejoin the earth. It will dissolve rather quickly. Hmm. That's yeah, good. I was thinking that. How when you drop a book into the bathtub. Lately, I started reading in the bathtub again. I had done it a lot as an 11-year-old. And I haven't done it for 55 years, but I got addicted to some true crime book about Mormons, the Mormon murders, it's called. And I just couldn't put this book down. It was like I had to take a bath. I would just I would read it in the bathtub and then you start to get sleepy and you're like almost drop the book into the bathtub. And once you drop a book into the bathtub, like it's never really a book again. I mean, that just takes once. And it becomes this other thing, this kind of half-dead, half-decomposed object. I think that's true for most books after you've read them. (laughs) They're in one state before you read them, but then they turn into something else once you've read them. (laughs) Except for, except some books. Some books have this continuous refrain, you know, continuous (laughs) echo that you can go into. So going into uh, Blake, the, the line, O Earth, O Earth, Return, is from his introduction to the Songs of Experience. 
this book is complementary with his Songs of Innocence. So these become two wings of this experience mm -hmm. that we're now going to launch. I mean, I could give background on Blake. You know, he was a sort of rough contemporary of Goethe. He was born in the mid-19th century, uh, 1857 or something. No, 1757. 1821, I think it is, or something like that. Um, you know, grew up principally around London, had a brief sojourn out of the city, um, grew up through the trade, through a printing press, you know, through you know, an apprenticeship to a printer and then sort of sold himself out here and there and then opened his own shop and had a very, you know, struggling life, you know, was married for 40 years um, or so or something like that, you know, like 35 years, I guess. And very much like Flaubert, you know, Flaubert, and I, this isn't actually entirely true of William Blake, who I think used to sit outside in the garden naked, but Flaubert said, you know, be regular and ordinary in your life so that you may be violent and original in your work. Mm -hmm. I like so, um, so this introduction, uh, the one thing that I wanted to emphasize in terms of that sort of book nature is just like if you look at the page uh, that is the original incarnation of this, I guess in Heaven and Hell is 92. What you have is a page with a background of the night and then a, a star field around what appears to be a cloud on which the text appears. Hmm. And this cloud is floating before the figure of a male figure reclined and naked on sort of this cloudy form, but it's got a little more color. It looks kind of like, I think, a tongue. Oh. Yeah. And then around it is, is air and the space. And then you have the figure. He's gazing to his right. His, the figure is averted from us, but his head in profile is looking to the right and gazing on the last words of the poem, <laughs> you know, which is the break of day until till the break of day. So it's, you know, it's kind of got an optimistic thing. And it's also an introduction, which is, you know, a kind of breaking of the book open, you know, like the beginning of the day, mm. you know, just contextually. The way in which I wanted to look at this poem, I seem to be rapping too much, and I do apologize and just jump in if you have something to say, is that I wanted to look at it in terms of a scheme that I've been thinking about of analyzing poetry by the appearance of the elements. Hmm. So, you know, again, we have sort of space and air and water and earth and fire, right? That's sort of the elements. One thing I was happy to discover is that in this poem are located all of the five elements, hmm. which, you know, we can look at. And then, you know, I, I um, did sort of like an exegesis on it and sort of pointing out some things so I could I could read it and then just talk about it as we read. And I think interesting stuff in here. But the one thing I would say the where where I would start is Sparrow in our communication I'd suggested that I was going to 
present a get out of um, of jail or get out of trouble free card by reading something from a critic. Oh, wow. This book, uh, Being Formed, Thinking Through Blake's Milton. Now, that's one of his prophetic books. This is before the prophetic period. And mm. this is Mark Brocker wrote this, what he writes. Uh, it demands that we re remain aware of the fundamental non-equivalence between Blake's allegory and our account of it. And that we acknowledge in principle the ultimate undecidability of the quote, and he has it in quotes, meaning of Blake's characters and terms. Speaking in traditional terms, we might say that we must avoid taking the map for the landscape itself. But hmm. such a statement would be misleading for Blake's poetry is not a fixed and definite topography that is susceptible to mapping. We can never establish a set of coordinates that will clearly locate the significance of any character, event, or detail in relation either to other elements in the poem or to our own perspectives. For the mm. only means we have of orienting ourselves is by relating Blake's elusive and polymorphous, polysemous words to other words whose significance is itself anything but fixed indefinite. Now, thus, making sense of Blake's poetry is like mapping a definite topography through a text of triangulation, but rather uh, uh, like sailing the high seas with shifting winds and changing currents, trying to locate drifting islands while taking our bearings from stars to move according to no known laws. Hmm, hmm. Yeah. So I read that and thought, okay. it, you know, whatever we say is fine because, you know, we're entering the domain of uh, loss. Loss is one of the characters of Blake, L-O-S, loss. Right, yeah. So that was a long piece. Yeah, sounds great. It's, well, I mean, it's a kind of, you know, it just tells us Blake's... Uh, all over the map, and he is the map. <laughs> is um is law Blake symbolism <clears throat> work activity poetic labor artistic work poetic labor artistic labor I believe that it's a anagram or no it's a backwards thing and it relates to S O L or sun huh? you know some would say soul huh. soul. So it has something to do with, but it has to do with sort of the creative verve or urge, urge. Oh. Yeah, I think when I was first uh, flunked out of Cornell University and sort of moved out into the world and decided I would be a poet, I was living in a uh, boarding house in St. Petersburg, Florida, and I decided I would read all of Blake. And in my memory, you know, I was maybe 19 years old. I, maybe by then 20, I did read all of Blake, and I think I understood just about none of it, like that uh, uh, critic is saying. But I, you know, forced myself to read it all, thinking, well, this is what a real poet does. Beautiful. And I was trying to, like, you know, call on, or did I quit in the middle? I can't remember. I, I remember finishing it, and um, but it may be a false memory. And so I was kind of trying to draw 
on this knowledge which may be deep inside my head for uh, this analysis uh, that we're working on today. But I got nowhere with it. <laughs> but I do, well, turn on the sun lamp and get like a tropical drink and uh, a beach chair, you know, to get into <laughs> Florida, you know. It was a very un-Floridian place. The yeah. place I was living was just this like moldy uh, kind of tenement building next to a fire engine station. And the, always the sirens were constantly going off. And, you know, it was just a bunch of, like, criminals from Ohio that had run away to as far as they could go. And then Route 75 ended in St. Pete. And there yeah. they were. So it was not very, uh, what's the word, tropical. <laughs> End of the road, yeah. So exactly. but relating back to, to, uh, to Blake as a primordial source of, I don't know, what you're supposed to read if you're a poet. Um, you know, the first line is, hear the voice of the bard. Yeah. Yeah. And what I like you about wanna... that here is that mm. it has this slightly Anglo-Saxon echo, you know, of the beginning of, of Beowulf, you know, oh. which is what, which is an unpronounceable, uh, 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 it doesn't mean anything. It, it's a word without meaning in the huh. text term for that but it also means like listen up you know like hear hear the voice of the bard <laughs> yeah. and then you know bard itself is is interesting because it sort of echoes that you know archaic form of the shope or the you know the minstrel the singer the bard i can keep going like this forever <laughs> I, no, I just I don't I don't want to. Uh, but it, uh, it's a brilliant poem that I, you know, got a lot of juice out of. Can I just let me just do the first stanza and then maybe we could pick up another poem and come back to this or not. Okay. Um, hear the voice of the bard who present, past and future sees, whose ears have heard the holy word that walked among the ancient trees. Hmm. You know, and for, and for me, you know, aside, you know, bracketing the mystery of the holy word, there are these, you know, echoes to a former state, you know, these ancient trees, and also to a kind of Druidian transmission, I believe. Yeah, um, I thought of that. Yeah. yeah. One thing about Bard is that it, you know, it, it comes from the Celtic and the Welsh, the Greek, Bardos, and it hmm. comes from the Proto-Indo-European, you know, which guer, which means to raise the voice and to praise. So the Bardic state, you know, is, also, is one of, hmm. you know, how that is. And then Ancient Trees was interesting to me. In terms of this druidical connection... I wanted to turn to Robert Graves. Hmm. I wanted to turn to Robert Graves and his The White Goddess. And, you know, what he says about Blake. And so I just want to read these two parts that mm -hmm. underlie this kind of Druidian thing. At this point, Graves had gone into a rap about contemporary poetry and kind of like how things are screwed up. Contemporary poetry in terms of skeleton as being like worthy 
poet laureates of England and Ben Johnson. And, you know, so it's like really hokey. And also <laughs> it's incredibly irritating. He has a little bit of like Ezra Pound, you know, like he's he's better than everybody else, you know? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. But he writes, the only poet, as far as I know, who ever seriously tried to institute bardism in England was William Blake. Huh. He attended his prophetic books as a complete corpus of poetic reference. Huh. But for want of intelligent colleagues, was obliged to become a whole bardic college in himself without even an initiate to carry on the tradition after his death, not wishing to cramp himself by using blank verse or the heroic couplet. He modeled his style on James McFadden. He's really talking about the prophetic books. Um, so we can skip, skip on. And then he quotes a, uh, a critic whom he doesn't actually identify beyond a leading English literary columnist. And mm -hmm. uh, this critic writes, Blake's feelings and habits were those of the artisan, the handicraft worker. His point of view was that of the class whose peace and welfare were disastrously undermined by the introduction of machinery and who were enslaved by the capitalization of industry. Recall how the imagery of wheels, forges, furnaces, smoke, etc., satanic mm. mills associated uh, with misery and torment, uh, years of Blake's life that were also years of incessant wars, whole Napole Napole Napoleonic wars. Mm -hmm. You know, that was his lifetime. It is obvious that the Imagery um, da, 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 is upsurging from Blake's subliminal consciousness of political passions. I'm not sure. Albion is a mythical figure typify heaven knows what else besides. But this is neither here nor. Hello? Yeah. It went dark. Oh, the light. The, wake the up. Screen. There we go. Hmm. Sam has disappeared. Yeah, or sort of frozen or like. I love that stanza from from the poem London. Um, in every cry of every man, in every infant's cry of fear, in every voice, in every band, the mind-forged manacles I hear. Mm, yeah. The, the mind-forged manacles. manacles. Yeah, the mind-forged manacles. Industrialized London. How the chimney sweepers cry, every blackening church appalls. And the hapless soldier's sigh runs in blood down palace walls. So then he concludes um, by writing, Blake read contemporary treatises on Druidism. And, you know, I wanted to get back Sparrow oh. Peter Lamborn Wilson. And he, Peter, has... Um, point of view and a and a and you know, somewhat historically nailed down marginally that Blake was the uh was some high druidical figure hmm. uh within the London society and in hmm. fact sort of some kind of apotheosis, some you know significant figure in that underground continuum. I just don't see how he had time, man. 
He was really, <laughs> you know, he was really hard up, I, you know, and did so much work, and uh, I don't know. Well, he had no children. Oh, right. Good point. Good point. No children opened significant time. Yeah. yeah. You know what's uh, striking about the the um, the um, songs of innocence and experience? Maybe this is obvious to everyone, but uh, they were written to music. Oh, really? They were musical compositions that Blake. Uh, we, we we there is a historical record of Blake having performed some of the songs, but the scores, the music, has been lost to history. We just have the the plates. Yeah, and, and there's something very interesting about the fact that they're illustrated. They're what I would call comic books or proto-comic books. They're, sure. they're drawings and writing merged together before the comic book existed as a form. And somehow that parallels the idea of that's how you portray a song in... Uh, visually is is by making drawings you know because you can't super you can't good portray point. music you know on the page well, the other thing See, i would say it's sort of underscoring your point we have something called poor connection oh good let me just go get my copy of songs of innocence and songs of experience i have a facsimile edition which oh, yeah, i just yeah. remembered <laughs> sam in, in the bardic tradition truths were conveyed of course through song right yeah well the thing is about this form of the song is that they mirrored the psalm the hymns of the church and those hymns were directed toward children and were pr principally in the way of instruction the way of moral guidance and to follow the path of Christian virtue and agonies or the prospect of hell as being something not to be wished for and all these things that Blake railed against. And so the songs of innocence and experience are also um, using the form against itself. Mm -hmm. It comes songs of liberation and of self-examination and of self-determination, mm -hmm. perhaps. You know, they're kind of romantic. Right. So you really get that, that didactic hymnal sensibility in the lamb from the Songs of Innocence, where the small child is um, singing almost some sort of um, innocent catechism to a, to a lamb. Right. Not mocking, but um, echoing, perhaps, um, the hymns that, that he would have heard in, in um, church, the young boy, that is. Blake was a, a Swedenborgian, I guess, at one point. That's my understanding. And the Swedenborg, there's still a church in New York City. I guess there are churches, you know, a few churches around the world that follow the teachings of Swedenborg. So I don't know what that, uh, what's the word, liturgy is like, whether that influenced um Blake, but I consider, I guess I went to some classroom once where the teacher wrote on the board, the transvaluation of values. And this was, this phrase was, I guess, a famous critical phrase meant to explain the theories of Blake, that Blake basically thought that what people call God is really the devil, and what people call dev the devil is really God. 
This is my understanding. I don't, I don't know if this comes from Swedenborg or from some other. In other words, God, the way we understand God, God's this person, an old man in the sky, tells us all these rules. We have to follow the rules. If we don't follow the rules, we'll go to hell. That, that whole idea of following the rules, that is really satanic, according to Blake, if I understand this theory correctly. And really, what is the devil? The devil is the spirit of revolt. The devil says, God, I refuse to obey you. I obey my own energy inside myself. I follow my own creative direction. That is really God. <laughs> anyway, that's my understanding of what Blake is believing. Well, I mean, I, I think that has to do not necessarily with the state of antithesis, but of marriage, you know, of the marriage and that you need huh. both. You know, that huh. they're complementary, huh. that they're concave, convex. And the marriage of heaven and hell. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. I, I see the, the critique of um, the Church of England, normative British 18th century, 19th century religious teaching in the Garden of Love from the Songs of Experience. It's a short poem. Garden of Love I, I offers a, a critique of the uh, repressive expression of Christianity that um, divided heaven from hell in a way that Blake uh, sought to marry in his own theological mythopoeic synthesis. The Garden of Love, I went to the Garden of Love and saw what I had never seen. A chapel was built in the midst where I used to play on the green. And wow. the gates of this chapel were shut, and thou shalt not writ over the door. So I turned to the garden of love that so many sweet flowers bore, and I saw it was filled with graves and tombstones where flowers should be. And priests in black gowns were walking their rounds and binding with briars my joys and desires. Hmm. hmm. Wow. Yeah, beautiful. That's a, a nice illustration of some of what we were just discussing. And, yeah. you know, part of that is, of course, the time in which Blake was alive, which was rife with child labor. Hmm. punishment of, of children and so that sense of the innocence of childhood being caged and uh, imprisoned in tombs of the dead and of the past the uh, figure of the chimney sweeper there are several poems dedicated I think one from there's a, a lot of doubling across these um, books and right. the sweeper and the Songs of Innocence, and then there's a chimney sweeper in the Songs of Experience. There's a lot of sense of conversation um, between the two books, you know, with repeating titles. And also in the poems themselves, there's a lot of address and response. There's a um, sense of talking to, you know, between people within the poems themselves. Sometimes the addressees are kind of mysterious, but um, that also is a form of marriage. That hmm. also is a form of coming together. Yeah, I found myself kind of obsessed with the question of, I guess, wrote the songs of innocence first, and then after a few years, he added 
the songs of experience. Like he had a sense, if I understand Wikipedia correctly, that's what they seem to be saying. And it, it's like, he, yeah, five years later. Because he, he wrote, I think he published The Songs of Innocence, 1789, the year of the French Revolution. That's Kind of like Marx publishing the Communist Manifesto in 1848, the year revolutions are sweeping Europe. So, um, and then I think there's sort of sense that Blake has that The Songs of Innocence is not enough. He needs something else. They're too cute by themselves and he needs a companion book. And so now when you read The Songs of Innocence, you're kind of just waiting for the waiting for the other shoe to drop. I was thinking of that phrase, which nobody uses anymore, uh, I think. You know, you're waiting for the companion poem to come and smash the uh, beautiful utopianism of the first poem. <laughs> At least that's what I felt about my poem, The, uh, the Blossom. You know, Sparrow, it's interesting how threats and and darkness and themes of maturation pervade, or the very least, haunt the margins, the periphery of the Songs of Innocence. Yeah, it's true. The two um, interpenetrate in, um, in, in a way that's uh, pretty interesting. Quick, qu- quick question about um, Blake's biography. Maybe um, either of you or both have an answer. Were the Songs of Innocence the first example of his um, illuminated writing producing his text and design on a copper plate with um in with some and then burning some, some sort of liquid into it the infernal method was it, <laughs> was the songs of innocence were the songs of innocence the first um expression of that as i understand it in 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 william blake's chronology yeah i don't know i'm, I'm not, not sure. sure you know his first book i think was called brief sketches isn't that correct? Poetic sketches. Poetic sketches, pardon me. And I'm not sure. I haven't seen a facsimile of, of that book. I don't have it. He Blake claimed that this method of making poetry um, uh, came to him through the spirit of his deceased beloved brother, Robert. Oh, oh I remember oh, so, so these are the first, according to my uh, facsimile edition. I'm going to read the... I'm going to read the, uh, the, the sentence. After executing some small experimental plates in 1788, Blake made the 27 plates of Songs of Innocence, dating the title page 1789, and thus initiated the series of his now famous illuminated books. Uh, that sounds like they were the first. Yeah, fascinating. And I love the fact that they were sung. So he was really reaching toward an operatic, uh, manifestation of these words, you know, and, visually and singing and, you know, you could probably include acting them out. Mm. Allen Ginsberg recorded these songs of innocence and songs of experience, or at least a few of them using the harmonium. Um, yeah, I saw, I saw some of them on YouTube and he believed that uh, Blake used probably a similar instrument, something like a harmonium, some kind of little organ to sing his songs on. But I didn't realize that it was commonly accepted that uh, that Blake's uh, songs of innocence and experience were sung. I, I thought that was a radical theory of Allen Ginsberg's. That's how it was kind of presented in one of these uh, YouTube videos. 
I tried to find mine, the one I was obsessing on, the one, uh, the blossom sung to the little sparrow, as sung by uh, Allen Ginsberg, but I couldn't find it. Ah, uh, shucks. Yeah, but I did put it to music myself. Not to <laughs> digress, but Jeez. favorite song adaptation of a song of innocence is by the New England singer Greg Brown. He recorded a few of them, especially his version of The Lamb, I think is stunning. Yeah, I, maybe it's now the moment for me to sing my version of, of my poem. <laughs> yeah, is, definitely. I just took it for the most, you know, banal reason that it is addressed to me. It begins, Mary, Mary Sparrow. And I thought, well, I'm not going to belabor this decision of which poem to pick. This one is talking to me. I think I'll take it. It's in the song, Songs of Innocence. It's in the Songs of Innocence. It's page nine, according to this version I have here, The Blossom. Mary, Mary Sparrow, under leaves so green, a happy blossom sees you swift as arrow, seek your cradle narrow near my bosom. Pretty, pretty robin, under leaves so green, a happy blossom hears you sobbing, sobbing, Pretty, pretty robin near my bosom. Nice. So, I like the, I really, uh, what really stands out for me and what you artfully drew out <laughs> is, is the blossom bosom. Yeah, I really did the not idea, notice the, the wrong. idea of having the blossom in your bosom, this, yeah. um, <laughs> this flower, you know, that you turn your bosom into a into a blossom. And then the the sense of the bird of emerging out of and being integrated with that natural structure is beautiful. It's mm -hmm. quite erotic as well. It's very sexual. Huh. The phallic symbol seeking satisfaction in the blossom of the maiden's bosom. Huh. This arrow, swift as arrow. Hmm. I think it's, it's a metaphor for um, sexual union, um, coitus, and purposefully placed in the Songs of Innocence to reclaim the act of love from some sort of negative theological association with original sin. Hmm. Yeah, I would I would second that. I think that's a a very poignant and terrific insight. Oh, point out the line sobbing sobbing here's you sobbing. sobbing. The state of, of <laughs> climax. What a moment to disappear. <laughs> Say it's um dimension. Yeah. Huh. So beautiful. And the image of, of a vagina as a cradle, I've never seen that anywhere, but it's a great metaphor, Isn't if it? that's what it is. Yeah. The, what, one thing about this poem reminds me of a, um, just to bring in a little dark inflection, of a, of a Jody, of an army Jody. Do you know what those are? No. Yeah. Oh, what's yeah, there's songs that are sung as you're marching to help you keep time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like really a very much an antithesis to the blossom. 
can I can I render it for you? Sure. Okay. <clears throat> so you have the drill sergeant, and it's a call and response structure. Yeah. So I say little bird, and then you say little bird. Okay. So I'll try to set it up. Hey ho, hey ho, little bird. Little bird. Yellow bird. Yellow bird. On the windowsill. On the windowsill. Gave him some bread. Gave him some bread. Smashed his <laughs> head. <laughs> Smashed the <laughs> head. <laughs> See, the nature of the Jody is Jody is the guy who's back home making love to your girlfriend or wife. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> and you're saying this has some of that structure? Well, no, it, it involves like a little bird, and oh, yeah. it, it, it involves a, a call and response, a sort of dia, dialogical structure. Yeah. And then it's the, you know, as I said, the reverse of what Blake is, is bringing forth, which is a far more organic, <laughs> you know, and this is like brutal, you know, this is marching. Yeah. Time. Kind of mob psychology kind of keeping time yeah yeah doing time <laughs> yeah well i mean can i discuss some of the things that this poem means to me the blossom yeah is that, you know uh i got the name sparrow because i went to my friend jennifer the princess of love in 1975 i said give me a new name she said you be a sparrow you look like a sparrow and, and I thought, well, gee, you know, I grew up in Manhattan. There were only two types of birds, uh, sparrows and pigeons. And um, I'm the sparrow, the sort of innocent little one, not the bigger, more rat-like one. Makes sense, sort of logical. And then here's a poem in which there are two types of birds, sparrows and pigeons, just uh, sparrows and robins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. But I somehow mistook the robin for the uh, for the pigeon. Interesting. Yeah. And, yeah. Robin, sobbing, robin. Yeah. yeah. And I wonder if that's why he says sobbing, sobbing, because it rhymes with robin. You know, the way swift as an arrow rhymes with cradle narrow. I wonder if, you know, there's a logic when you write. I don't know if you ever write uh, rhyming poems, but I do sometimes. And there's the logic of language kind of decides some of your choices. And maybe the robin is sobbing just because it rhymes. And I don't know. I, I want to hold on to, you know, my identification of sobbing, sobbing as being a manifestation of the state, orgasmic state. And couldn't he have used something else? Sobbing is so such a radical departure, such a, a, a volta. Yeah. Right, Andrew? Volta, and, right. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, he could have put in Robin so he could get Sabin. Yeah. And then I was, I read that in Wikipedia, it said that some of these poems shuttled back and forth from songs of innocence to songs of experience. He couldn't decide on some of them. The ones little girl lost and little girl found they mention kind of would move back and forth because this almost seems like a song of experience 
because it ends sob. How is sobbing a form of innocence? Unless maybe it is. Unless maybe the sob. You know, we follow our theory of uh, sexuality as innocence. Or, or, or look, look. Um, I, one thing I noticed that in London, um, there's a great deal of emotional frigidity. Discharged. Frigidity that that. Um, that here we have a free-flowing emotion that has not been occluded by the uh, requirements of maturation and being in the world and uh, huh. turning the uh, emotional, the affective center into some sort of tundra, as happens with so many adults. Hmm. Yeah, I dig it, man. I think that's a terrific point. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I believe that one should weep or sob as easily as you laugh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that would be a that would be a profoundly touching plane on which to enact a life. And uh, and part of the natural superiority of women that you know, like all of us are married to women, I believe the three of us. And I don't know about your wives, but my wife, she does it less than she used to. But if she's really upset about something, she just cries for like ten minutes. And then she feels a lot better afterwards. And pretty much, you know, the only time I cry is when I'm watching a Disney movie and it doesn't seem to have much of a cathartic effect. It's not like I'm really discharging my emotions. It's more just like the producer of the movie wanted me to cry, so I cried. Yeah, you, and know, you feel I, a little raw afterwards. You feel a little cheapened, <laughs> don't you? I, I mean, my wife and I just saw that movie <laughs> about... Um, uh, Mr. Rogers, the one with Tom Hanks oh, yeah, in it. Yeah, yeah. And I, I was like crying, I don't know, at least 48% of the movie. And then afterwards, yeah. it's like, oh, yeah, I just go around telling people, yeah, I've just been crying watching Mr. Rogers. I mean, you feel like an idiot. <laughs> but it's a great movie. That's what struck me um, when I took John Ashbery's course. Before huh. I knew who John Ashbery was, I, I, I didn't know anything about his reputation. But he would uh, cry in class. Really? Yeah. No he would, kidding. He wouldn't um, sob in class, but he, he you know, a, a tear would streak down his face if he read something beautiful or if huh. he memory. I don't know if that was just where he was emotionally that year. Huh. Maybe something significant was happening in his life. Maybe he was going through bereavement. I don't know. But what he year? Would, oh, I can tell you exactly. This was 1996. So he was what? In his seventies. He was in his early seventies yeah. at that point. In his early seven, maybe seventy-one, seventy-two, something along those lines. Huh. His French boyfriend might have been, might have just died around then, or was was you know was dying around then. I, I forget exactly. But I remember he, that. Yeah, Pierre Mortarai, poet who was his partner, had had w- w- was very sick and passed on the next year. And oh. Right. Ashbury came to a small poetry reading that um, I helped to host, and he read W.H. Auden's Funeral Blues in oh memory of Mortarai and burst into sobbing while he yeah. was reading. Is that that poem that's in Four Weddings and a Funeral? Yes, that's, that's it. Yeah, one now, of the greatest question, poems ever written. Now, just to circle back, I mean— Figuratively speaking, Sparrow, and I think you're the only one who can address this question, <laughs> is what do you think William Blake, in terms of his 
care, um, you know, these songs of innocent sons of experience that seem to hedge around childhood, mm. um, a state of the state of innocence of childhood is, um, you know, an incredibly modern way of thinking. And most of this country still hasn't copped to it of letting <laughs> kids like determine themselves and give them real freedom to, you know, have this period of time before they uh, have to enter in whatever, mm. you know, way, the satanic mills. But mm. what do you think Blake would think of Mr. Rogers? What would, he <laughs> think, what would he think of the pedagogy underlying Mr. Rogers' neighborhood and the teaching that he was doing? Well, I mean, you know, when you see this film, it, I mean, I always hated Mr. Rogers, and I still kind of hate him. I mean, the, the TV show and the character he played, it just seems so boring. But um, apparently the whole, all of Mr. Rogers is just a kind of metaphor for discussing one's deepest and most difficult emotions. And in that way, it seems like he's kind of eye to eye with, uh, with Blake. And also he would finish his show, according to this dopey movie. You know, yeah. Mr. Rogers would finish his show, everybody would leave the studio and he would sit at the piano and improvise. So he, you know, which is a kind of Blakeian moment, you know. Sure. And, and you know, like, it was kind of like, it was as if the show just kind of leads into this kind of reverie, like almost the reverie of prophecy that, um, that, that Blake had. I mean, according to this movie, you know, Mr. Rogers is like an enlightened being. He's just at a very high level and he's really accepts everybody, is patient with everybody, and loves everybody, and is you know, and is struggling to, to constantly to like confront his own emotions so that he doesn't, you know, block himself from the pure love, you know. Wow, Sparrow, I would say, um, just piggybacking on what you just um, reflected on, a Mister Rogers-like character in um, the Songs of Innocence, and that's oh. the figure of. That's the figure of Old John. Oh, yeah, I was thinking of Old John. Oh, yeah. Old John, That's who is good. a figure of, a figure of benevolent paternal care, looking over the children and guiding them from play back to their domiciles, back to their homes, in the poem that I selected, The Echoing Green. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's only yeah. in that poem, right? That's the so, only one he's in. That's the only appearance he, um, that he makes. Oh, the figure mm -hmm. of Old John. Do you want to read it, the whole poem? I, I, I could certainly read it. It's like the, uh, the etching. Um, we can talk about that in a moment. Here oh, is yeah. the language, the, the echoing green. The echoing green. The sun does arise and make happy the skies. The merry bells ring to welcome the spring. The skylark and thrush, the birds of the bush. Sing louder around to the bell's cheerful sound while our sports shall be seen on the echoing green. Old John with white hair does laugh <laughs> with care, sitting under the oak among the old folk. They laugh at our play, and soon they all say, Such, such, such were the joys when we all girls and boys in our youth time were seen on the echoing green. Till the little ones weary, no more can be merry. 
the sun does descend and our sports have an end. Round the laps of their mothers, many sisters and brothers, like birds in their nest, are ready for rest. In sport, no more seen on the darkening green. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, really cool. For me, it has this primordial quality, you know, of that this enactment, you know, goes deep into our Plasticine, you know, Plasticine time. You know, it's an archetypical thing, you know, and reminds me of college. <laughs> I, I appreciate the, the symbiotic, I guess I would call it a symbiotic relationship between the old and the young in the poem. Yeah. The young uh, children allow the old to remember youth and the old allow the young to enjoy their youth because they feel cared for. They feel uh, protected. It's haunting for me as well because of the uh, theme of transience. And one thing that I was noticing as I was preparing this poem is we uh, have a movement, adjectival movement, from the echoing green to the darkening green. Mm-hmm. At the yes. end, the, the temporal is propulsive. Um, everything's in constant flux. The whole life cycle is um, contained across these three stanzas in a pretty interesting way. Childhood, um, maturation, motherhood, old age, the afternoon, the night. Yeah, I was struck also by this echoing in relation to bells, which is repeated twice. Hmm. The merry bells ring, the bells cheerful sound. And it reminded me of of Dylan Thomas. Hmm. Uh, Dylan Thomas, I think, in A Child's Christmas in Wales, there's a line, and the bells uh, ran, and the bells rang across the town. And then there's a refrain. It's, a, it's the form of a kind of mask or a play. And then there's this refrain where the self responds, and the bells rang inside, too. Hmm. Inside, hmm. like inside of one, like inside oh, yeah. of the children, the bells are ringing. Hmm. Tinkling sounds. But, hmm. the, but also the idea of that that's the sound current. That's the, uh, I think in Indian terms, Sparrow, the Shabbat. Well, I don't know that term. So, and also you think of how uh, the Joan of Arc heard the God or the saints speaking to her in the bells, like in some literal way. One thing about the bells, the Mary bells um, are a type of flower. Oh, yeah. Mary hmm. bells are a type of lily huh. that have a very um, delicate bell-like shape to them. Very delicate. Huh. And if you if you t- if you touch this type of lily, be as mm. clear as a as a Mary bell, um, <laughs> you touch this lily, it um it can collapse quite easily mm. if you do it in the wrong way. Mm. You know, there's there's a political reading of this poem too, in that the echoing green that disappears into darkness might be some sort of commentary, and the the disappearing of the green, that is the disappearing of the commons. Huh. Close your axe. Yeah. As a result of the uh, privatization of um, of collectively 
you know, farmed um, and uh, toiled and uh, occupied land. And maybe less children had time to play because they were already working in factories that early. I don't know if it started, if child labor started that early, but yeah, that maybe. Is, that's because that. Hey, that's really interesting, right? And that gives the bells in the poem an entirely new meaning. The merry bells versus the bells calling you to work, or Absolutely. the bells calling you to worship. Mm-hmm. Bells calling you, you know, from downstairs, upstairs. Yes. And also the merry bells ring to welcome the spring. Like real church bells don't ring to welcome a season. You know, they they ring for sort of the canonic, what's the word, liturgical, theological year, not for the pagan uh, worship of of uh, the flowers. So this is part of maybe his subversive uh, imagining that uh, this is like a better church, an imaginary church that that's in harmony with nature, you know. In terms of that sort of notion of harmony, continuing on with this introduction to experience, you know, the Mm -hmm. next stanza, you know, after walked among the ancient trees and then goes calling the lapsed soul. So again, that loss, you know, soul and weeping in the evening dew and then colon. There's a colon uh, punctuation mark. And then it says that might control the starry pole and fallen, fallen light renew. And then you get to, O Earth, O Earth, return, which I believe to be, you know, the beginning of a kind of incantation Mm -hmm. and kind of a more druidical, magical incantation, some Mm -hmm. form of magic. But what interests me is that might control the starry pole And um, I think that's part of the structure of this book, you know, in which the state of innocence, as it may be defined, and the state of experience equally, you know, to be defined or whatever, that these are the poles. I don't know if this is right. It, it, you know, called up for me, Goethe, saying uh, the eternal contradiction, the begetter of all things, Hmm. you know, contemporary of... The idea of the reconciliation, the complementariness of heaven, hell, yin, yang, consonance, dissonance, innocence, and experience. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. And you really can't have innocence without experience. I think innocence is sort of like the soft pulp inside of a seed. And then the experience is this shell or this covering Hmm. that protects Hmm. innocence. The purpose of experience is to is to guard the boundaries of innocence. Huh. Hmm. Hmm. I don't really understand this poem that much. I am clear about the uh, why. What is Earth returning from? I found myself thinking that is it returning from uh, winter? Is it returning from Christianity? From night? I couldn't really get that either, except from, I think it's sort of returning from night or something, you know, because there's this anticipation of the break of day. Yeah. But who's it addressed to? So it's addressed to, oh, earth, oh, earth, return. So now we're talking to the earth. Yeah. And then it says, arise from out the dewy grass. 
Didn't Dewey come up someplace else? And then uh, night is worn and the morn rises from the slum slumberous mass. I don't slumberous mass, the mass of inchoate materia, the mass of night, the sleeping night. Um, or, or, or is all it the, the people? Divine? I don't know. I found a, a paragraph um, analysis of this poem um, ah. written by Jeffrey Keeney's, possibly at some point in the 19th century. Do you want to hear it? Yeah, sure. So this is his um, paragraph analysis of Plate 30, the introduction from the Songs of Experience, 1794. In his, his introduction to the state of experience, Blake sees himself as the ancient bard, the prophet, who heard Jehovah speaking to Adam in the garden. He calls the fallen man to regain control of the world, lost when he adopted reason, the starry pole, in place of imagination. Earth is the symbol of the fallen man, who is summoned to awake from material and to turn again to the free life of the imagination. The starry floor of reason and the watery shore of the sea of time and space, the edge of materialism, are there only till the break of day, if earth would consent to leave the slumberous mass. The decoration shows earth as a female figure reclining on a couch borne on a cloud among a night of stars. In the copy, her head is surrounded by a golden through which she looks. Right. Oh, that help. Yeah, right. I'm interested. I so he uh, he sees that as the figure of a woman. I thought it was a guy. Kind of maybe yeah, homogenous, sort of. I don't know. By the way, I think that's. I think the guy is um, a little bit off. If you don't mind my saying. What do you mean off? Oh, you mean this this critic? Yeah, his reading. You know, as soon as he like comes up with Jehovah. What? That's like, <laughs> you know, total ex, um, reimposition, you know, there comes, you know, the punishing father, you know, get back in the corral. That, that's, <laughs> yeah. I mean, one famous uh, Blake saying is um, a man must, a man, you know, I think, you know, a dude or dudette must <laughs> create their own system or be enslaved by some other cat. <laughs> yes. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. But I think, quote, inestimable Mr. T, be somebody or be somebody's fool. <laughs> Sorry huh. to interrupt. Wasn't uh, Bob Dylan, didn't he say, you got to serve somebody? And it <laughs> might be the devil. And he might be the law, but you got to yeah. serve somebody. As we saw him sing recently at the Beacon Theater. I thought it, was, thought it was the best version of that song I've ever heard. I don't think I, I think I heard it live once. I thought it was yeah. a fantastic version. And he closed. Yeah. I think he might have closed it set with it, right? It was one. Yeah, of the it was the last song, and then he did two uh, encores. Yeah. So it was kind of like his last statement. Damn. But I mean, I guess, but this idea. This uh, opposition of the imagination to reason uh, in Blake, that does sound right. I think I've read that as one of his central ideas. Well, he, I believe reason 
for Blake, inter, uh, I'm not sure about the language, but reason is a is a is a positive attribute. Mm. Um, there's not a, a sense of of reason as being, you know, I'm, I I don't know. I'm not positive. I, I I don't know about his sort of constellation of dualities. Yeah. I only I try to focus more on his convergences and coming togethers and because that seems to me the way forward now now um isn't uh the figure of your risen in in the world of blakeian symbolism the world of reason and law you you reason your reason yeah maybe pronounce your reason u-r-i-z-e-n i think it is pictured um depicted as an old bearded man with a net <laughs> and there is some savage poem by Blake attacking Newton. I, I wish I could remember what it is. I, I, I've run across that before. That, that sounds familiar. That's, uh, I remember that. What, he was critical of Newtonian laws of the universe and rational... Well, the 18th theory. century is the age of reason. So, I mean, one way to look at it, that's when these, that's when our nation was invented. You know, the United States is, comes directly out of these philosophers, philosophers of the 18th century who were absolutely rational, 100% rational. Thomas Jefferson rewrote the Bible and took out all the miracles because the miracles were irrational. I mean, that's how I see it. One thing about Newton is, of course, he had a whole body of writing that was suppressed. Oh, yeah. To do with alchemical processes and investigations of an entirely different kind of unreasonable science. <laughs> and he was an absolute believer, Newton. He seemed to really believe in God. So he, it wasn't the triumph of reason to the extent of pure atheism. Yeah. One one thing also about this poem in this last stanza, can I just say? Yeah. In terms yeah. of this coming together, this last stanza is kind of interesting. First line is, turn away no more. Why wilt thou turn away? So again, you got this like return and earth thing. But now you've got this turn away no more. Why wilt thou turn away? So now who is that like thou? You know, now we're getting into a diction in which it's sort of like a lover. You know, why mm. are you turning away? Turn mm. away no more. Why are you turning away? The starry floor, the watery shore, uh, the starry floor, by the way, space, uh, watery floor, water, you know, many other elements in terms of sort of the, you know, the convergence of all the elements are here, which, again, I think goes back to this, the magical nature of this address uh, <laughs> is given the till the break of day. You know, and again, in terms of that's a sort of trope of innocence, you know, of the of um, the fully manifested desires, you know, but also this idea of like, you know, get it while you can. Because, you know, this last stanza turns this thing in a weird way. I believe it's very much like a dawn poem. Do mm -hmm. you know what a dawn poem is? No. It's a trope out of the uh, Provencal literature. It's called an alba, hmm. a dawn poem. And in dawn poems, what it is is you have a guy, a guy usually, 
you know, and then you got a girl usually, and they're getting together and making love. But it's a, either an illicit love or they're not married, you know, they're having an affair. And then <laughs> when Don comes, like they got to split before Don comes because you need right. the, the darkness. You know, and the cock crows and things like that. There are all sorts of tropes in this form. But that's yeah. what this last stanza is. Is this kind? I think it has this um, magical erotic um, quality. Yeah, I was thinking of like blues songs. You know, let's rock and roll all night long. Rock and roll till the break of dawn. Yeah. You know, this kind of idea of having sex till the dawn comes. Also, it's I saw Romeo and Juliet this uh, summer in. Uh, in Carroll Gardens and, uh, you know, that image of uh, their, you know, Romeo and Juliet are entwined in bed. Is that the nightingale or is it the lark? You know, is, is the night over or is it still going? You know, yeah, yeah I, I think maybe there is an erotic side to this and maybe the erotic element uh, does make it all clear. Maybe that's why these poems seem so opaque. Is he, That's one of the things he's hiding. His heresies, his sexuality, which are kind of the same thing. His the revolutionary same. strivings, uh, yeah. emo, you know, goals. Yeah. And also this, like, the state of coitus is a, is a state of equilibrium between male and female between what are conventionally considered um, opposites uh, as a yeah. state of um, marriage um, is a state of coincidence. Hmm. Yeah, I was struck in the echoing green by the feminism of um, where he mentions both girls and boys playing uh, on the echo echoing green. And in fact, he mentions girls before boys. Such, such were the joys when we all, girls and boys, in our youth time were seen on the echoing green. Like he has almost a kind of modern day feminist, you know, consciousness, like mention the girls first before the boys. Yeah. And who knew that girls were even allowed to play sports in 18th century England? On the plate in the are two young men picking grapes and serving the young ladies. Mm. as opposed to the other way around to just um, further your uh, proto-feminist interpretation. Do you, do, are you looking at the plate? Do you see that? One boy has a clump of grapes, and he's um, dangling the grapes down, somewhat erotically, I would, I would add, to a young woman who's not, who's not one of the um, prepubescents. I, I, would, I would guess she's probably 13 or 14. Hmm. So yeah, one of one of the most surprising things about all these three poems is like, who knew that uh, Blake was like pro football? Like when he says, uh, uh, "While our sports shall be seen on the echoing green," and then um, you look at the image, seems more likely it's cricket. I think it's a cricket bat that this uh, guy is holding. The quote that you uh, gave. Um, just now, Sparrow, would uh -huh. look very good at the entrance to Kamitsky Field or to, 
you know, like a famous stadium, they would have William Blake's words, you know? Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Check this out. Um, in the, the specific sport that the kids are playing in this detail, and it, it is a game that involves a hoop and a stick. How does he, how do you know that? I can see it here. Um, oh, oh, yeah, in the, uh, in the image. Yeah. Yeah, image. Do you see that? There's a hoop and yeah. a stick. Yeah, they're what playing, is that? which has a. I don't know what it's called. I, I've seen depictions of it before in art. I guess it's something that young kids did on the green to, to pass time and have fun. Yeah, I know. That I think- also, if I may say, point out directly that that underscores an erotic component. You got uh, it. You know, one of the metaphors is, you know, a, a stick and hole, you know, like a, a, sex, a coitus. Mm-hmm. Preach opponents. Preach. I hear you. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think that game was played like, you know, in up until the twenties or something. I don't know what it's called. I mean, I've my friends and I were Winslow Homer. Winslow Homer has a famous painting of this game. I've seen somewhere. Maybe it's Andrew Wyeth. I confuse those two. I think you're right that it's Winslow Homer. And this is when kids wore knickers too. This kid with the little hoop is wearing knickers. Yeah, uh, you know, so I read somewhere that, like, there's there's a famous painting by Bruegel, I don't know, called Children's Games or something. And supposedly there's, like, 58 games being depicted in one big painting. And supposedly, like, uh, 38 of those games were still played in the streets of Manhattan in the 1950s. And I played a lot of those kind of ancient games, you know. Stick uh, Yeah, no, I played a game, uh, Hot Peas and Butter. That <laughs> was one of the games I played, which, you know, sounds like, I mean, I grew up in a housing project in, uh, in the northern part of Manhattan, you know. I'm born in 53, but one of the games we play, you know, it sounds like it's from whatever, 14th century England. And it was, I forget what you did, but at the end, if you lost, some, the other guy, the guy who won would take out his belt and whip you while chanting, hot peas and butter, hot peas and butter, something <laughs> like that. <laughs> I don't know where to begin that one. Yeah. <laughs> Just one of those innocent children's games that uh, Blake is so uh, interested in. <laughs> Also, I, I had this idea, the echoing green, it almost sort of implies, don't you think it kind of implies that, like, the lawn, the grass on the lawn is talking back to us, you know, like we're speaking, we're running around playing our games, kind of laughing with delight, and then the 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 grass is echoing us, you know, the green, it's almost like the, the plants are talking back to us, they're happy too. Yeah, I have... A, lo- a life cycle interpretation of the echoing too. How the uh, the games of our youth continue to echo in our consciousness as huh. we move through time, closer and closer to our own apocalypse. You know, in, in a way that delights and in a way that haunts simultaneously. And also, I wonder if he's sort of suggesting that, like, when you're a kid playing hot peas and butter. Like, it's very serious to you. You're really hoping you're not the one to get whipped. You're hoping the one to, that you're going to be the one to whip your friends, both literally and figuratively. But when you're old John with white hair, the whole thing is very amusing. You know, it's, 
you you don't have that you know utter obsessiveness and the compulsion to win. You can just look out at it as you know like a, like a god looking out at the earth with benign uh, compassion. And I would also I would also point out that John is mm. a figure of the uh, a kind of not green man, but I believe John is associated with archetypal sense of the of of the hermit of the wise man except not in this case in a hermetic state but you know with other men other older men and other older women i think uh robin hood iron has john a, isn't that it iron no, john or, iron john yes that's, that's right. right isn't that robert Bly's? robert yeah Bly. that's his book this was a very edifying conversation I would like to dedicate it the spirit of imagination. <laughs> Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. And please join us next time and remember to stay tuned and strange. <laughs> <laughs>